welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're speaking with Carol Anderson about her book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Yeah, so this is a, it's a fascinating book. It, in many ways, we talk about this in the interview. In many ways, it will walk through a kind of history of anti-Blackness in the United States uh, that will be familiar to many listeners and to many readers. But it kind of frames that around the question of the Second Amendment and gives us a whole new way, not just of understanding the origins of the Second Amendment, which as readers and listeners will understand is is fundamentally steeped in anti-Blackness and in the history of slavery in this country, but also a way of thinking through the afterlives of the Second Amendment and how we think about it in the present. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even for me, as someone who's just really not much of a student of American history, the through lines, I was suddenly, this this whole story became so visceral to me because Mm -hmm. it was so easy, you know, to just make an arrow from the past, starting pre-Civil War to this current moment we're in. In, in so many ways. Yeah, that's that's exactly how I felt about it as well, Kate, is just that kind of tracing of the long historical trajectory in ways that make us see the present in new ways. Yeah. Okay, well, let's get to that conversation. Okay, great. We are grateful to have Carol Anderson with us today. Professor Anderson is the Charles Howard Candler Professor and Chair of African American Studies at Emory University. She is the author of several books, including One Person, No Vote, which was long listed for the National Book Award and a finalist for the Penn John Kenneth Galbraith Award, as well as White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, a New York Times bestseller and National Book Critics Circle Award winner. Carol joins us today from her home in Atlanta to talk about her latest book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. The Second takes a long historical look at the emergence and development of the Second Amendment, which goes, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And she explores this amendment against the backdrop of anti-Black violence, fear, and public policy. Professor Anderson's book reveals the various ways in which slavery, and in particular, white slave owners' fears of slave insurrection, shaped the Second Amendment from its very beginnings, with long-reaching effects that we continue to face today, just a little over a year after the murder of George Floyd by a white police officer. What the Second reveals is that America's most infamous constitutional amendment was not about guns, but rather it was about race, It was about the racial divides through which a white man wielding a gun receives constitutionally lauded legal protections, while in the hands of a black man in America, a firearm is so often its own death sentence. Thank you for joining us, Carol. Thank you so much for having me. Maybe you could start just by walking us through the political climate the Second Amendment emerged in. You write here that it was a bribe paid again with black bodies. And it had to do with the Northern and Southern factions of the United States warring about the constitution, which I didn't realize. So maybe just ground us in that history and how the amendment emerged. 
so part of what you had, we had the Articles of Confederation, and they weren't working. Each state was running its own foreign policy, printing its own currency, and there was a group coming together to rework the Articles of Confederation. And in that reworking, James Madison really took hold and said, what we really need to do is not amend the Articles of Confederation. We need to have a whole new document. That whole new document became the Constitution of the United States. And what that document did was it put more power in the central government than the Articles of Confederation did. And it had in there, in order to get the Constitution through, there were these what I call bribes that the South required in order to sign on to the Constitution. That was expanding the time for the Atlantic slave trade to 20 years. It was the Fugitive Slave Clause and it was the three-fifths clause that allowed the South to have greater representation than its numbers actually warranted. Then the Constitution went out amongst the states for ratification. That ratification was swinging through fine, fine, and then it stalled. It stalled. And one of the big stalls was Virginia. And in Virginia, the home of James Madison, you had Patrick Henry, Mr. Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death, saying he did not want this Constitution because embedded in the Constitution was language about federal control of the militia. And the militia had been so key in Southern life to putting down slave revolts, to providing a level of comfort for whites that those whom they held in bondage would be consistently held in that bondage, that it would keep whites safe. And so in those debates in the Virginia Ratification Convention, there were things like, you know, we cannot, the North detest slavery. Can we really trust them? Can we really trust Congress to send the militia in to protect us? We will be left defenseless. And in those debates, you know, Madison is doing his best to convince them, look, you got the three-fifths clause. Look, you got the Atlantic slave trade for two more decades. Look, you got the fugitive slave clause. And Patrick Henry's going, it's not enough. It's not enough. And putting enormous pressure on Madison to create a bill of rights that would protect the states from the federal government and protect individual rights from the federal government. So this is our bill of rights. And also there was momentum brewing about having a new constitutional convention. And Madison is like, oh Lord, I do not want this thing. Because if these folks get back up in here and they start talking again, what they're going to do is the anti-federalists are going to gain momentum and they're going to revise the Articles of Confederation and we're going to have that thing again. And so for Madison, it was, how do I stop this mess? How do I maintain the constitution with a functioning central government but also mollify and appease these anti-federalists who are concerned that the control of the militia will mean that they are left vulnerable when there is an insurrection by the enslaved. And that was, as I'm writing this thing, this is the context for this amendment that really looks whacked in our Bill of Rights. I mean, you know, you look at it and you go, I mean, it's up there with 
Congress shall not create, establish any kind of religion. You got freedom of speech. You've got freedom of the press. You've got the right not to be illegally searched and seized. You've got the right to a speedy and fair trial. You've got the right to not have cruel and unusual punishment. And then you've got this thing that is about the militia and the right to bear arms. And it looks it looks like an outlier because it is. Because what we have in our Bill of Rights is a right to control Black people. Carol, just to redouble this a little bit, I mean, what's so fascinating about your book is the way in which it offers, by framing everything around the question of the second, it allows us to encounter American history in a very different way than we normally do. And so picking up on a couple of things that you were talking about, just so that audience members are familiar with the kind of insights that your book gives us. One, these militias were not even going to be effective against the British. They weren't, right? Exactly. I mean, that was one of the things. And so part of the narratives that we have now in the 21st century is, you know, this narrative history of like, wow, the militia, they were in there and they were fighting against the British. They took the British on. Wow. And the militia were also great against tyrannies of government, except what was happening at the time is that you had George Washington going, God love a duck. Um, <laughs> Lord, this militia, you cannot count on them. They will cut tail and run. Lord, my kingdom for an army, a real army, you know. And so the militia, in terms of taking on a professional army, being able to fend off an invasion by a professional army, their record during the Revolutionary War was really spotty, so much so that Governor Morris out of New York said relying upon the militia for defense is like relying upon a broken reed. <laughs> right? So and then you have the militia in terms of tyranny. You had Shays Rebellion in Massachusetts, and that was about taxation policy and the ability of the government to seize land for non-payment of taxes. Mm -hmm. So you get this militia of Shays that are attacking the governments in Massachusetts, taking over courthouses. They were coming for the armory in Springfield. And as Massachusetts is trying to come up with another kind of militia in other states. Other states were like, no, nah, baby, you are on your own. And the militias that were there, they were actually bleeding off and joining Shays. And so it took Boston merchants having to basically raise a private army, mercenaries, to take on Shays' rebellion and put it down. That was the Banquo's ghost that was hovering over the Constitutional Convention when they were writing about who would control the militia. It was seeing how weak this militia was in terms of defending against an invasion and in terms of upholding the law. Where the militia was steadfast was in crushing slave revolts. And similarly, the other point that I want to make sure that listeners understand, because I think there's a similar kind of rewriting that happens around the Civil War, this kind of, you know, it was heritage, it was economic policy. To be very clear, the Southerners during the Constitutional Convention would have rather remained a British colony than they would have joined a free nation that potentially, right, it's all potential, like potentially would have emancipated their slaves. So, you know, can you talk about like, in this sense, I think it's like, we have this narrative, especially on the right, especially in the South, of being 
well, these are tried and true Americans. In fact, they were ready to bail at the very sense that, you know, their property would not be considered theirs anymore. Right. And so you have this, there's this moment in the Revolutionary War when the British have figured out, you know, they have taken a bit of a butt whooping up north and they figure out what they call the soft underbelly was in the south. And so they're sending their army down to invade Georgia and South Carolina. Well, Georgia fell like that. South Carolina, you have John Lawrence, who was George Washington's emissary. And John Lawrence was a son of South Carolina. He was one of the part of the storied families in South Carolina. And he went down to South Carolina to beg that government to arm the enslaved because the British were coming with like 8,000 troops. All South Carolina had available were 750 white men because the rest of the white men were basically tasked with controlling that massive slave population. They were so afraid of a slave revolt uprising during this war that that is how they had allocated their resources. And so when Lawrence came down and said, look, 750 white men aren't going to be enough to stop what the British are going to do, you need to arm the enslaved. The South Carolina government was horrified, horrified, and to the point where they were like, no, no. And then Nathaniel Green, General Nathaniel Green comes down and he is just begging them, imploring them, arm the enslaved, arm the enslaved. And they were like, "Mm -mm." basically, they would rather take their chances with the British and take their chances as traitors rather than arming the enslaved. They were like, you know, we don't know if this is a nation even worth fighting for. I mean, that, to me, that is one of the kind of through lines that we're seeing in American history. When it comes to championing white supremacy over the United States, white supremacy consistently takes center stage, consistently. I mean, this is what we saw happening with the Civil War. And when you read the articles of secession in the Civil War, Mississippi is really clear. This is a war about slavery. <laughs> this is, they're like, we have all this wealth. It is like really good, but it is hot out there. It is too hot for any white man to work in these kinds of conditions. Only the African can work under these conditions. And so they've got the articles of secession are very clear. So this rewriting of history to take away what they know is the stain of slavery and try to make it about heritage or something else is an ongoing battle in the United States about how our narratives, how we come to know ourselves. I was curious reading the book, what the relationship between slave owners and guns were. To be a slave owner, did you have to have a large artillery? Was that basically the only answer in terms of keeping your slaves? So one of the things I cited a study that looked at the probate records back in those times and found that Southern holding states had a larger percentage of its population, white population that owned guns, and that those plantations that had sizable populations, sizable slave populations, 
owned like four times as many guns as those that didn't. So the issue of gun ownership and controlling Black people was prominent, prominent in that era. We'll bring ourselves back up to the kind of present 20th century that you recount in the book, which is super fascinating, especially the stuff about the Black Panthers, which I think is where most people will see or immediately remember this disconnect. But one of the historical events before the revolution that your book recounts, and which I found incredibly compelling, was the Stono Rebellion of 1739. So can you tell us a little bit about that uprising and the ways in which the kind of fears and possibilities to which it gave form helped in turn to mold the ideology, the white supremacist ideology that your book so beautifully reveals drove the creation of the Second Amendment? And so in Stono, South Carolina, there was a labor gang of 20 enslaved Black folk working to build roads and bridges or something like that. And while they're out there, they're scoping out, they're paying attention to the rotation. They're paying attention to where the guns are. They're paying attention to the lay of the land and when, how many people are available to oversee them. And on a Sunday, they rose up and they went to where the cache of arms were held. And they killed two of the clerks that were there and they grabbed the arms and then they marched for their freedom. They were headed to Florida because Florida was held by the Spanish and the Spanish had a rule that if you get here, we don't do slavery. And so it was a free space. And so they were headed. And as they were driving that way, they are slaughtering folks. And what happens then is that South Carolina had a law that all white men had to carry their guns, even in church. And so when the bell is rung, the alarm goes off that there is an uprising, the white men run out of church carrying their guns because they're part of this militia to hunt down the Stono rebels, to hunt down the enslaved who are on their way to Spanish Florida for freedom. In Stono, there were 60 people killed, about 20 whites and about 40 of the enslaved. And then there was the slaughter afterwards, the making visible what happens to those who fight against slavery, who demand their freedom. And you had two things happening legally at this time. One, you get an ordinance passed that says that If you can catch any enslaved person who is headed to Spanish Florida, you catch them, scalp them. I mean, so this is, wow. Then there is the Negro Act of 1740 that defines the enslaved. It says they are absolute slaves. That is in total. And for those who aren't even born yet, who are not even born yet, If you're Black and you come the lineage of slavery, then that means that you too will be a slave and you haven't even been conceptualized yet, right? Conceived yet. And it also defined Black people as criminals and saying that you had to have this apparatus of control on these inherently criminal, violent people. And that the Negro Act of 1740 in South Carolina provided the template for other slave codes throughout the South, because it also banned literacy. It banned books for, you know, it was about how do we control this population? 
It banned the movement of the enslaved. And it basically created an environment where all whites were part of the slave catching community, where they were the ones who could challenge anybody black. Show me your papers. Why are you here? Why are you on this road? The Stono set the tone in so many ways for what emerged. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Carol Anderson, author of the second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. Jacqueline Rose on the line with us today. Jacqueline's new book is called On Violence and On Violence Against Women. And Jacqueline is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Jacqueline, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend Anna Burns' Milkman, which came out about three years ago, um, which is the most incredible book about Me Too and harassment and Northern Ireland and partition and sexuality all written in a style which so pulls the ground from under your feet whilst being a form of lyricism that I've never read before. But I think it's astounding. And it's about this young woman who walks the street reading books from the 19th century because she doesn't like the 20th and finds somebody drawing up in a van beside her who becomes her encroacher, a word I think should pass into the lexicon, because it is a book that reveals the violence and the robbing of psychic autonomy that can be done to a young woman without touching her. So mm-hmm. it's a very chilling book about the quest and the search and the interference and what her creating her own mental space is as a riposte to that and to the violence which the book also charts across the border in Northern Ireland. Let me say she took years to get this book published. And when she wrote it, the crisis of the border in Northern Ireland, which has been brought to a complete peak by the Brexit talks and the border down the sea and the hard border between the North and the South and the Me Too movement had not yet been heard of or reached the public eye. So she's written a book which anticipates the dangers of crossing a border, harassment, and the dangers of preserving a border, violence between unionists and republicans in in Northern Ireland. It's set in Belfast. I think it's a major book and I would recommend it to anyone. I want to add in there though, I know I'm not meant to be doing this, but I'm going to add in another book that I've become deeply involved in in the last few years because it's it's on different ground, but it has some of the same qualities and I think it's equally wonderful. That's Emma McBride's A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, which Mm -hmm. is also a book about abuse. And it also treads on the ground that you were telling me that you find so uncomfortable and necessary about what happens to the mind of someone who's been abused if they then go courting violence, which the narrator does of this story. But it's also a book about Ireland. And it's it's also treading the divide between political and personal violence but it's inside her head entirely so you Mm. have to go in and have the experience so for me it was historic that these two women's voices happened within a couple of years of each other both had 
incredible struggles to get their novels published. And both of them are talking about female sexuality. It was as if, as I think I say in the book, as if James Joyce's exploration of sexuality, which was seen to be revolutionary, but never spoke about this right, it was like the return of modernism's repressed. It was as if something that had not been touched on by a writer like Joyce was now surfacing and taking experimental writing into its next phase. So those are the two books I would recommend. That's an incredible recommendation. Can you tell us the titles of the two books again and the authors? Anna Burns Milkman, Ema McBride, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. Thank you again. Thank you. We've been speaking with Jacqueline Rose. Her latest book is called On Violence and on Violence Against Women. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Carol Anderson, author of The Second. If we could jump ahead a little bit and talk about, you know, post-Civil War, during Reconstruction, when it's not so much a fear of uprising anymore or losing slaves, but still any African-American with a gun still is, you know, kind of interpreted as a menace. And so why, you know, this is, I guess, more of a, so why is that? I mean, especially in the South, when it's, when it's no longer, I mean, it's still a form of control. Why do, why do things really not change very much after slavery? And this is what I talk about with anti-Blackness and the language that comes to define Black people as an absolute threat to white Americans. And that it didn't matter whether they were enslaved or free Blacks during the antebellum era. Remember, free Blacks had all kinds of restrictions placed upon them. And, And after the Civil War, it was about the menace, the threat, Um, So when you had um, black soldiers who were part of the occupying army and the response was they're here to kill all of the whites, that 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 sense that black people will kill whites, that sense that there is inherent violence, inherent criminality in black people becomes part of the standard mantra in the American narrative. And do you also think that's a fear of reprisal? I mean, that it's like... <laughs> it's oh, just, yeah. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it is like retribution be thy name, right? So there is this fear of we know what we did. We don't really acknowledge it, but we know we, what we did. And we are afraid that if they get free, they're going to do the same to us as we did to them. And that fear that fear of blackness and that fear of retribution brought on by the the guilt drives this thing. Um, It drives the the black and and the fear that if black people get free, so, so much about the end of the civil war was about putting black people back in their place, right? So that they knew their subjugated place so that they knew that they were not equal and that those rights did not belong to them. Um, So much of the violence 
that we see heaped down on black folks was about what makes you think you have the right to vote? What makes you think you have you have the right to, to have your own job? What makes you think you have the right to be in uniform? That kind of violence, that kind of sense of place is absolutely essential. It is back in the slave code days. What are you doing out here? Show me your papers. Show me your, you have a legitimate reason to be here. Place, where do you belong? And that, drop, that, that sense of Black subjugation and anti-Blackness is pervasive. I mean, I, I think that's one of the through lines that you see in the book is that it just keeps reemerging in all of these different spaces and that it is impervious to the legal status of Black people. Enslaved, free Black, newly emancipated African-Americans, Jim Crow Black to post-civil rights Black. Um, it keeps coursing through the, the level of Black precarity, the way that Black lives are just precariously perched, um, vulnerable, comes through this entire book. Just to kind of talk about that post-Civil uh, Rights Act of 1964 period, um, and I think now we're kind of in the late 60s, so 67, 68, um, when Huey Newton, the leader of the Black Panthers, and Bobby Seale, also high up in the structure of the Black Panthers, get stopped by police. Um, and they have legally carried, legally owned firearms. And this was part of the Black Panthers' quite brilliant strategy to prove the disparity, but also to, frankly, in a very real politic way, prevent or deter the police from their otherwise unmitigated brutality against Black people in, in Oakland and also in, in all of California, to say nothing of all of the United States. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that particular moment and the consequences that it had for Black civil rights in the post-1964 Civil Rights Act period and how that intersects with those racist foundations that you've elaborated with regard to the Second Amendment? So you have the Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, they're in a car and they get pulled over by the police and they get pulled over near Merritt College. And the cop is yelling just all kinds of obscenities at them, get out of the car, right? Da, 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 da. And what are you doing with those damn guns? And Huey, who was in law school, knew his rights, knew California statute, as well as the Second Amendment. And he's spewing it right back at the cop. And he's like, you don't have a right to take my gun as an American citizen, da, 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 and California statute, da, 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 da. And because he's not genuflecting, because he is as confrontational with the cops, which is like something you learn not to do, right? And, and so having Huey just take this cop on and students are coming out of the building and they're seeing this and they're like, ooh, ooh, oh, this is something new. <laughs> this is something mm -hmm. fresh, right? And then as and so the reputation of the Panthers really grew from that, um, that they were willing to challenge the police and challenge the police on 
their rights, knowing their rights. And that, that challenge to the police, because when you think about it, the police are the, the force most likely to be the contact, the government contact in those communities. Right, and, right. It, and it's not a good contact, no. generally. The list of atrocities just keeps going. And then having the, the Panthers investigate the killing of Denzel Dow, who the cops said, uh, he was burglarizing a place and then he, he was confronting the police and so we just had to kill him. It was just justifiable. And so they investigated and the police's story wasn't matching up with the evidence. Mm -hmm. And so then they held a street corner uh, review of the case, bringing all of these folks in. And and one of the FBI informants like, I have never seen black men hold that kind of respect and attention from the black community before. And so this kind of attention became just seismic for uh, the Oakland Police Department and for the California General Assembly. They were like, uh-uh, uh-uh, oh no, and we got to stop this. And so how we got to stop this is to, to create a law saying thou shalt not open carry. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was the open carrying of the weapons that made, created a sense of power for the Panthers, that they are open carrying. And, and so it was writing this law that was absolutely helped by a member of the National Rifle Association. E.F. Todd Sloan of the ERA worked with Don Mulford, Representative Don Mulford, to draft the language to, for gun control. And you read the the documents going back and forth. And so I know this is where historians get off, but, you know, (laughs) reading the documents um, where they're like the Black Panthers are serious concern. And the Oakland Police Department asked me to to draft this legislation. And so you see how Black folks carrying guns, open carry was not illegal in California. It was the Panthers openly openly carrying their weapons that then led to the NRA working with a conservative representative and eagerly signed on by Ronald Reagan as governor of California to ban the, the methods that the Panthers were using to police the police. It's such a potent symbol. You know, I mean, beyond beyond the the you know right to self protection and the way the Panthers help police the police, also just to walk around, it it, it has such visual potency. And I, I I thought of I thought of the Panthers even before they came into the book many times um, throughout reading it. There were other instances that you write about where African Americans were parading. I can't remember exactly what the parade was, but with arms, where it, it did not have a, another time where it had a really poor outcome. Um, what am I thinking of from your book? I think you're thinking of Camilla, Camilla Georgia, um, and also in Hamburg, South Carolina. So Camilla, these are both post-Civil War, 1868 and 1874, and there was a slaughter, uh, a slaughter of Black folks parading with guns. Um, 
it and and so the the three elements that I'm tracking through this book are the right to bear arms, the right to self-defense, and the right to a well-regulated militia. And how when it comes to African Americans, those 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 rights just evaporate, just dissipate. Um, they are conditional on white acceptance. Um, um, Derek Bell talked about interest convergence. Um, so I'm getting ready to go back in time a bit. We had interest convergence with the battle at Christiana in 1851 in Pennsylvania because of the Fugitive Slave Act, where you had Edward Gorsuch, a slave owner, um, coming up to Christiana to retrieve his runaway slaves. And the, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 gave him the right to do that. And it made Pennsylvania complicit in that. And what that did, though, it really ticked off the North. The North was like, uh, most of the North were like, uh-uh, I'm really not for this. I'm really not for this. And, and so that interest convergence when at the Battle of Christiana, where the enslaved, the, the Black people fight back and Edward Gorsuch is killed. And, and his two sons, his son and his nephew are seriously wounded and the U.S. Marshal runs away. Mm. When there's this trial and they're charged with treason for violating the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, that's treasonous, right? Um, the judge is like, nah, that doesn't look like treason to me. That really looks like, uh, you know, black folks just trying to defend themselves from these folks who are just like kidnappers. And, and so that interest convergence meant that Edward Gorsuch's uh, death, um, that no one was ever found guilty for his death. But that interest convergence doesn't happen too often. Um, so black folks carrying guns is contingent. It is, it is systematically contingent upon white interest. Going back and forth, I mean, I think you see that, you know, from 1850 and then even cutting to the yeah. present day. I'm, so, I mean, it's the heartbreaking cases that you described that are now, you know, more known to most Americans um, towards the end of the book. It, it does seem that, you know, black rights really go out the window if a, if a white person feels threatened and it's, so upsetting. Yes, I mean, and that's the the book actually began with the killing of Philando Castile. That's that I'm sitting here in my home office and I'm seeing the the killing. You know, that we saw the the footage, the the was it FaceTime footage that that Diamond Reynolds took and when she's saying, "Why did you shoot him, sir?" You know, and this was a man who had followed NRA guidelines, letting the police know, I have a licensed concealed mm. weapon here. I am reaching for my ID as you have requested. And the fact that he had a licensed weapon led to him being shot dead by the police. The, the virtual silence of the NRA in that killing for a man having a weapon, not threatening anybody, just having a gun, a licensed gun, that virtual silence. And journalists were asking, what, don't Black people have Second Amendment rights? And I went, 
That mm-hmm. is a great question. And that's what got me on the hunt. So that's what got me from looking at a, a case in the 21st century and going all the way back to the 17th century um, and tracking the, the access to weaponry um, and how the laws worked and, and seeing how it was the f- slavery and the fear of Black revolt that really just drove the law saying, thou shalt not have arms, thou shalt not have weapons, thou shalt not, we will whip you on your bare back 39 times if we catch you with a gun. And how that comes through up into the 21st century. So when you have, you know, so we talked about the Panthers. When you have the Panthers following California law, they did not have sawed off shotguns. They had you know, legal weapons, openly carrying legal weapons. And it was like, how do we make them illegal? And and then creating a, a fig leaf over that going, no, this isn't targeted at African-Americans. This, you know, we're going after the Minutemen and the Klan too. The Minutemen and the Klan, while right-wingers weren't openly carrying weapons, uh, that was the Panthers tactic. So the, the fig leaf of, you know, this, is, this applies to everybody, but it was targeted at the Black Panthers. Yeah. As you turn to the kind of contemporary examples, including, I mean, very sadly, too many to name here, but Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, Breonna Taylor, um, Philando Castile, uh, obviously, as we said at the top of the show, George Floyd, you, you actually restore to my consciousness, the centrality of the Second Amendment to each of those cases. And so as we kind of wrap up here, I I wanna ask you a little bit about what you think centering the Second um, helps us to see in these stories or in these narratives across history that we're missing. And then in a related sense, kind of what conversations you hope this book will start with, um, you know, individual readers, but also policymakers, politicians, in order to address the clear and to, to crib a little bit from your book subtitle, the fatal disparities in America's gun laws. Centering the Second Amendment in these stories really allows us to see the way that anti-Blackness works in American society, contemporary American society, where we like to swaddle ourselves in post-racialism. You know, uh, it is Lindsey Graham talking about how can there be structural racism? You know, we elected Obama and we elected Kamala Harris. And no, (laughs) no. Um, By by seeing the way that it operationalizes um, in in these encounters uh, consistently, it helps us see how the Second Amendment is not, and so this is going to move into the next question, how the Second Amendment is not this kind of hallowed ground of our founding fathers and our right to to ward off tyranny, but in fact, it it is as pernicious as the three-fifths clause, that the work that it is doing is designed to stop to curtail the rights of American citizens. That's the role of the Second Amendment here. And that's the conversation. I don't want us to keep in this this loop. Mark Tushnet wrote a book, Out of Range, where he talked about we're in this this loop where we keep talking about uh, 
the Second Amendment and it's governed by what your your political stances, um, whether we're talking gun control or whether we're talking the unfettered right to bear arms. This book isn't about that. This book is about how do we really begin to ensure, how do we begin to dismantle anti-Blackness as an operating code in American society? And how do we begin to ensure that the rights of all of our citizens are equally met, equally fulfilled, equally emboldened. That's where we need to be. And the conversations we're having about the second on whether it is about the right to a well-regulated militia or about the individual right to bear arms does not get at this core question of the basic rights of Black people in a society where anti-Blackness is so pervasive. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with Professor Carol Anderson, who joined us today to talk about her book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. 